1: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a rallying cry. It's been roughly 24 hours since every Senate Republican joined together, building the wall, as it were, to block debate on the voting reform bill, the For the People Act. And what should be crystal clear to you at this point is that Republicans at every level, federal, state, everywhere, are putting in place, step by ugly step, all of the tools that they need To steal the next election, and the one after that, and the one after that. You get the picture? Across the country, 14 Republican-led states have enacted 22 laws that restrict access to voting. And they're just getting started. At least 61 additional bills with equally restrictive provisions are snaking their way through 18 state legislatures. Most of these laws just so happen to target communities of color—the elderly, people with disabilities, and the young. And if that's not repugnant enough, some of these Republican laws have stripped secretaries of state of their power, clearing the way for partisan control of state election boards and made it easier to overturn election results. Take, for example, the partisan unconstitutional and undemocratic 2020 election inspection happening in Arizona, which Republicans across the country are keen on replicating. In Pennsylvania, Trump successfully bullied a state senator into backing a similar fraudulent review of the 2020 election, even though state and county officials have repeatedly said there was no evidence of fraud in the state. These calls come around the same time that a similar Republican review of the 2020 election in Michigan found no evidence to prove significant acts of fraud. Say it louder for the MAGA people in the back. There is no fraud. But that's not stopping Republicans from rewriting the rules. The question is, what can Democrats do about it? In the courts, a slew of voting rights groups, with help from election super lawyer Mark Elias, have launched an all-out legal war against the anti-voter laws. In the streets, civil rights groups, like the Poor People's Campaign, are hosting events with an eye on Republican and Democratic senators. Today, they held a moral march on West Virginia Senator Joe Joe Manchin and on Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, calling on them to kill the filibuster and pass the For the People Act. Reverend Dr. William Barber and Reverend Jesse Jackson were under field arrest for, quote, illegal demonstration activity after leading nearly a dozen buses of activists from Ohio, Pennsylvania and New York. Down South, Black Voters Matter launched their Freedom Rides for voting rights last week. And today they were in North Carolina and South Carolina engaging and more importantly, mobilizing voters. Fair Fight Action, led by Stacey Abrams, as she discussed on this very show, launched their Hot Call Summer campaign to help educate and mobilize young voters of color and young progressives. And on August 28th, the 58th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington, Martin Luther King, III and the Reverend Al Sharpton will launch their voting rights campaign in D.C. It's a nationwide march against voter suppression. And that is just some that is just some of what's happening out there in terms of trying to protect your right to vote. And this will be a voting rights summer. Meanwhile, Senator Amy Klobuchar is taking her committee on the road. They're going to stop in Georgia to hear firsthand from people who are being impacted by this voter suppression law. Joining me now is Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, the chairwoman of the Senate Rules and Administration Committee. And, Senator, explain to us what you're doing, because I think a lot of people—part of the anxiety that people who are worried about our democracy feel is a sense that Democrats seem a little bit calm about it. And they're definitely—we're definitely not calm out here. I'm not calm, Joy. Good. Okay, so tell us what you guys are doing.
2: (laughs) Well, I just see the evil out there and what they've been doing all over. As you point out, over 20 of these laws have actually passed. And I think we got to do something about it. And what I loved about your lead-in is just all the action happening right now to mobilize people, to get them to vote. And so what I'm doing, for the first time in 20 years... The Senate Rules Committee is going on the road, and we're getting out of this building and going to where the people are and hearing exactly what's going on in a state like Georgia, where they literally passed a law that banned volunteers from giving out uh, water and food uh, to people who sometimes have to wait in line for hours and hours and hours in the hot sun. And we're going to hear about how they, what they did to mess up and Try to limit early voting, just like what you just heard about in Texas, where the governor just today um, announced um, action on July 8th in Texas after those brave legislators tried to stop it. So we this is just the beginning. Our party was united yesterday and the Republicans stopped us not just from discussing this. We couldn't even debate it. Not yep. for a week, not even for a day. They stopped it in its tracks and we've got to bring our case to the people and let them hear. From the people. So, so
1: I know that Senator Joe Manchin has his own version of voting rights bill. Some people love it, some people don't love it so much. But that is, in theory, the next bill that could end up getting onto the floor. Uh, Ron Brownstein tweeted this today uh, that Jeff Merkley has said that there's no guarantee of success, but Senate Democrats do have a plan of what comes after GOP blocks this first debate. Senator Jeff Merkley said they'll quickly negotiate a new voting rights bill centered centered on Manchin's plan that all 50 Democrats back and then see if any, much less 10 Republicans will sign on. My guess is no Republicans will sign on to that. OK, I could let me just let y'all know in advance they aren't. Have you
2: discussed with That's Senator why people John- watch your show. Joy, that's why they watch your show. Thank <laughs> well, you for that insight. No, absolutely.
1: Yes. But the reality is, shouldn't Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, who I don't know if they're on your committee, Are they going to go on any of this trip? Because it might it seems to me that it might be helpful for Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema to hear from the people that you're going to hear from.
2: Okay. Well, let's step back uh, about the mansion proposal. And first of all, what we voted on yesterday was to move to a debate on the bill. Yep. He's done some good faith work. And I know Stacy has told you about this, including now, you know, considering, including same day registration in his proposal, along with the early voting, uh, the 15 days of early voting and a number of other things. There's clearly still language that has to be worked out and we're continuing to work with him. So that's really important to know his good faith effort. Uh, From there, we have to figure out a way to get this done. And I believe in abolishing the filibuster. I've come to that belief after seeing years and years of obstruction on everything from immigration reform to climate change as we're heading into this hot summer, um, as well as voting rights. Um, But even Senator Manchin has shown a willingness to talk about the standing filibuster and other ways you could do this. So I haven't given up on any of that, um, especially when it comes to voting rights.
1: So that is that is actually kind of hopeful, because if, you know, I know that there is the former Senator Al Franken um, is, is part of an effort to come up with things like having, you know, 41 votes um, to hold a filibuster, having people hold the floor. Are those conversations going on in the Democratic caucus, including Manchin and Cinema, to say maybe we add some of these things so they can hang on to their precious filibuster, but that at least it would be, you know, more realistic than trying to find 10 Republicans to do
2: anything? I just don't think that's realistic when it comes to voting rights, and I want to make that clear. It may be on other things, but they, instead of, you know, changing their candidates or changing their views on issues or changing how they talk to people, they double down on it, and now they're saying, well, we want to change the voters. In the words of Reverend Warnock in his maiden speech, some people don't want some people to vote. So the answer to me is look at these Senate rules figure out what we can do to move ahead. And as Senator Schumer has said many times, failure is not an option. But the exciting news for me from listening to your program um, is that there is so much work, even outside of us taking our rules committee out on the road and continuing this push to get this done, that there's organizing, including organizing to get people to register already for the next election that's going on right now. And that people should view that as progress and excitement and not not give up on the work that must be done.
1: Well, I, you can get an amen on that. It's not Sunday, but you can get an amen on that. We cannot give up. Our democracy is too important. Senator Amy Klobuchar, please keep in touch with us as you get out on the road. Thank you very much. Really okay. appreciate you. Cheers. All right. Well, joining me now is Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, and she is running for governor of Arizona. Let's talk about your state. Your, your state has got one of the weirdest uh, <laughs> fights against uh, against the right to vote. I mean, even this story about Your ballots being trucked off to another state, you know, and and, and trying to figure out what the heck happened to those ballots where they've been like trucked off to Montana or something. Do you know what the status is of these ballots that were that were trucked away to Montana?
3: Uh, You know, it's unclear what exactly is happening because the, the folks in charge of this exercise have not really been forthcoming with information. And so we think it's hard drives with ballot images going to some lab, but we have no idea of what the security is. Of, of this lab or cabin or where, wherever it is or what they're do, what they're planning to do there. Uh, and again, it's because they haven't shared the information. Um, this exercise that they keep saying is transparent, but we know it's not. Uh, so we do know that they plan to wrap up their work this week, I think. Uh, and then they're expected to issue some sort of report in the coming weeks uh, uh, to summarize whatever they Quote unquote find. <laughs> I cannot
1: I cannot wait. The the chicken poop, uh the bamboo, you know, the ballots that were supposedly flown off overseas or flown in from China yeah. Cannot wait for this report from the cyber ninjas. We definitely want to read it. But, but, you know, as much as we can laugh at how stupid uh, you know, a lot of it sounds, I mean, the cyber ninjas are going to make a lot of money because it seems like every Republican in every state wants to hire them to come and do that there, including in states Trump won. You know, Florida's looking at it. Everybody wants to repeat the madness that's happening in your state. How much of a danger as you as a former elections official, how much of a danger are we in that that is going to be the new norm? for the way Republicans react to election losses.
3: Um, Yeah, and I'm still the election official, so um, I just want to clarify. (laughs) Sorry
1: Sorry about that. You are still.
3: Hey. Um we we um, we know that th- that these folks are writing the playbook to take this on the road around the country. They're trucking in legislators from all over to see the great gold standard. And I say that completely sarcastically because this is not an audit um, and that the cyber ninjas are making a lot of money off of this. And, um, and and so we have to be writing the playbook of how do we stop this from coming? And there's really nothing contemplated either in our statute or other state statutes that that. That even you know contemplate the idea of this type of post-election um, rehashing of the results when you don't like them, um, and really, it's untenable that that it, it is. It, it at the bare minimum minimum, it gloms up election administration. We're already trying to get ready for the next election, and it's consuming resources. But their end goal of continuing to try to undermine the public's confidence in our elections is really dangerous. And, um, and so, you know, it's important that folks are watching and that we're trying to stop this from replicating. Do you, how badly do
1: you and other, uh, election administrators that you talk to want and need a federal law to get this, to sort of stop this madness?
3: It is very critical to have some sort of federal intervention to ensure uniform voting access across the country and everything that we're talking about is tied together the big lie from the election this so-called audit in arizona the rash of voter restrictive laws that we're seeing across the country um and the failure of republicans to even debate voting rights improvements in in congress um, it's all connected together and a federal federal laws to improve voting access across the country, provide some minimum floor of access is so critical right now. And it's clear that the American people want this. Um, And so I was very hard to hear from Senator Klobuchar. She's done so much great work on this legislation and helping it move forward. Um, I'm I'm glad that they're taking this on the road to hear from Americans about why this is so critical.
1: Yeah. And and I know that there is a law that's winding its way through that would actually strip you of your power in election administration. (laughs) Democrats did do a move to try to block it. Do you think that law is going to ultimately get through very quickly? I'm out of time. But do you think that law is going to wind up being on the books?
3: It sounds like it will, and we're going to challenge it. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, we will definitely keep an eye on Arizona. Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. still ahead on the readout. Conservative activist Christopher Rufo launched a campaign against critical race theory, or as he calls it, the perfect villain. As I pointed out on this show recently, everyone from Tucker Carlson to Donald Trump listened. Rufo responded on Twitter, challenging me to bring him on this very show to debate. Okay. well, he joins me next. Plus. Speaker Nancy Pelosi drops hints about forming a select committee to investigate the Capitol insurrection. One of the officers involved in the response thinks it would be a very good idea.
4: As an American, I believe very strongly in a in a two party system. Um, Right now, one of those parties has a cancer and we got to cut it out.
1: Wow. And two Republican governors battle it out to see who can be the Trumpiest Trumpster in the land. But only one, only one can be tonight's absolute worst. Who will it be? The readout continues after this.
4: Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin joins to unpack the Trump trial.
1: One of the big takeaways from this is... Is our system
5: flawed, not in the sense that more people can't access that process, but in just giving that much process in the sense that someone like Donald Trump can abuse it? Most criminal defendants never get the chance to exercise all of their due process rights. Donald Trump is stretching due process beyond its point of elasticity. That's
4: this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow.
0: Alpha one-niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming game console console smart thermostat set for cuddle time doorbell
4: camera oh my package is here
5: fast reliable able to power tons of devices inside your home at once all systems go you are clear for takeoff this is xfinity internet wi-fi built to wow and watch the short film the aviators now playing at xfinity.com restrictions apply actual speeds and are not guaranteed
1: The fight to vilify critical race theory occurring mostly within the confines of Twitter and Fox News is now taking over school board meetings, in some cases turning into a literal fight like what you see here in Loudoun County, Virginia, where a public meeting over lessons on race and a proposed policy on equity for transgender students devolved into mayhem with audience members displaying aggressive behavior. One man was charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. Another was injured. And we reached out to Loudoun County Schools and asked if critical race theory is being taught anywhere in the district. And not surprisingly, both the superintendent and the school board say, no, it's not. Rocca school board meetings are one result of a national campaign by political operatives to eradicate curriculums on racial and other forms of equity, which, mind you, is not the same thing as critical race theory. One of those operatives, critical race theory opponent Christopher Rufo, joins me now. And Christopher, thank you so much for making some time to be with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's let's start out and do the elephant in the room. So, so, you and I started off on a little bit of a Twitter beef. Um, I talked about you. I quoted you um, in an article um, that one of our uh, great journalists here uh, at NBC had quoted you in a piece, and I quoted that on TV. Uh, and then you tweeted um, that you wanted to come on the show and said, you know, I didn't have the courage to put you on. Now, I will just note that Twitter is a, for, is a hyperbole zone. So, you know, I, it, whatever. It's all water under the bridge. But I just want to just get to a, a couple of little factual things. Why would I need courage to have you on? Are you like an expert in you know, race or racial history? Are you a lawyer? Are you a legal scholar? Uh, is that part of your background?
4: Uh, yeah, I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, uh, where I'm running their initiative on critical race theory. And uh, the reason that I reached out on Twitter to you, and I appreciate you having me on, I enjoy this right. kind of cross-partisan dialogue. But the reason is not just because you were attacking me on air, which I think is fine. It's politics.
1: I'm sorry, I wasn't attacking. you. I was reading your quote. So that's what I did. I read your Sure, quote. but you were but reading
4: on. it with the framing, calling me a political operative, which I'm not. I'm actually a think tank scholar. But uh-huh. let's put all that aside. The problem that I have is that you've really spread uh, four, I think, key false pieces of information about critical race theory. Okay. You've claimed in recent weeks that critical race theory isn't being taught in schools. Mm-hmm. You've claimed that most American public school students learn what you call Confederate race theory and are taught that slavery was, quote, not so bad. You've claimed that state legislation will prevent schools from teaching about the history of racism. And finally, you've claimed that critical race theory isn't rooted in the philosophical tradition of Marxism. Uh, And I think that all four of those claims are wrong. And I'd love to discuss them tonight. Okay, let's 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 go through some of this. All right. So the first thing and we're going to talk about the
1: politics, because uh, I'm going to challenge you a bit on whether or not you're political operative. Uh, I read your this is your talking points memo that you've put out that definitely seems to be working because you've seen people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio use a lot of the verbiage that you suggest and a lot of the framing that you suggest that they should use in talking about critical race theory. I also watched your video, very highly produced, like well-produced video, in which you, you, you make a lot of claims, um, some of which I just want to go through very quickly. First of all, I found a couple factual errors. When did you say—when do you say that critical race theory was created?
4: So critical theory was created in the well, 1960s and critical race theory, critical race theory yeah, critical was, was theory based in the late different. 80s, mm-hmm. the late 1980s and early 1990s.
1: That's actually not true. So I, I went on Harvard University, which is where critical race theory was born at Harvard Law School. It actually happened in 1981. Professor Derek Bell and some of his students, including Kimberly Crenshaw. So we've confirmed that. So that's actually not true. Uh, th- let me go through one other thing, because you make a lot of allegations, uh, my friend, a lot of allegations. You, you talk about, particularly in your video that people, these professors, these professorial types who you even acknowledge are academics, that they are looking to do such things as replace equality with equity, which is a conservative charge that, you know, since I was in high school, they've been saying that, um, to ending individual property rights and even to committing reverse genocide or calling for reversed genocide. I know you're a filmmaker no. by trade. You're a documentary filmmaker. Yeah, you use the term reverse no. genocide in your. No, fil- that's I actually that. no. I did wa- that's wait, factually incorrect. What, you did. You did. And so, and not, you know, I'm not. We can't play it because we're not going to pay you to play your your video. But that's sure. But what you talk about. Hold on, about. Joy. So wait, you can play the page. This evidence. is a term. What it's, the is the term your is actually. Counter-genocide. One, one, one moment, and it comes counter-genocide. From, it comes, and what is your and evidence that? it comes from a that?
4: book called Rethinking Ethnic Studies, which is rooted uh, in the critical race theory tradition. It's not my term that I'm loading onto it. I'm simply quoting a, a book that is cited in California's model ethnic studies curriculum. Uh, uh-huh. I think that's horrible. You think that's horrible? We can agree about that. Uh, but you can't misrepresent where it comes from, who's and, promoting it.
1: And model ethnic studies is not critical race theory. Uh, let me go through one other thing. You say that Ibram that, uh, Kendi, Dr. Ibram Kendi, who's a college professor, you call him the guru of critical race theory. So we reached out to him. Uh, I've interviewed him before. So we reached out to him because you say he's the guru of critical race. theory. You name him a lot in a lot of your both in your manifesto or your, your talking points memo, but also in your video. We reached out to him. We asked him We asked him if he's a critical race theorist. He said, I admire critical race theory, but I don't identify as a critical race theorist. I'm not a legal scholar, so I wasn't trained on critical race theory. I'm a historian. And Chris would know this if he actually read my work or understood that critical race theory is taught in law schools. I didn't a- in- attend law school, which is where critical race theory is taught. It's really the only place it's taught. We, we, we NBC has looked well, into everywhere, and it's not taught in elementary school. But hold on a second. This is the second thing he said, which— it's strange to well, me ahead, that you have, let, wait. Let me respond. This is hold not a monologue. On. This one should moment. be a dialogue, no, right? Uh, Am I right? It's well. It's my show, so it's it's how I want to do it. So let me let me read you one more quote from him, because you've made a lot of claims about critical race theory, saying that white Americans are inherently racist, that that racism is inherent to whiteness, um, and that is one of the core charges that you're making about, you know, these sort of what you consider like sort of woke studies in school. This is what Ibram Kendi has said in his own words. He said, we've been taught that racist is essential to who a person is. It's a fixed category. It's in someone's heart. That's one of the reasons why people are unwilling to or unable to admit the times in which they're being racist, because it's not just admitting I was being racist in that moment. Basically, we're tattooing racist on our forehead for the rest of our lives. Isn't that the opposite of what you're arguing?
4: Well, I'll say two things. First of all, it's very interesting to me that so many people are now running away from the race of uh, the, 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 the no, label of critical race theory. But I'm, I'm gonna, critical I'm gonna quote race two, hold on. I'm going to quote two critical race theorists, Barbara Applebaum with the book Being Good, Being White. She says, quote, all white people are racist. Uh, Robin D'Angelo, who's another critical whiteness studies scholar, a says that, theorist. quote, nope. all, all, all white identity is inherently racist. So no. what you're doing is you're playing a series of word games. No. You know that critical no. whiteness studies That's is a ironic. subfield of critical race theory. No, it's not. Uh, these things are all deeply interrelated. No, they're not. They're and, not. And, and I'm not going to let not. you play word games. And this is I, this well, is really, I think, funny. the most essential thing. H- hold on.
1: No, 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 no. Let no, me I'm respond not, at least once. No, I haven't gotten a full no, sentence no. out. Because I'm, I'm not going to let you. See, one of the things that I, and I don't know, you probably never watched me on TV. Just, you know, we didn't know who each other were, you know, not so long ago. But I don't allow people to just make up. And say lies on the show. It's just not really right to do that yeah, and let sure. people hear. But hold on, but Robin DiAngelo. Right, wait, 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 wait. Right Robin D'Angelo is not a critical race theorist, and I want everyone to know that. Robin Di- I, I don't know who the other woman is, but she's not. But let's just go through a minute because whiteness, you know, and racist whiteness and racist. Sure. Where did the term whiteness come from?
4: Sure. And I think this is an important point, and I hope you let me actually get a full paragraph out about this. Go for it. But whiteness whiteness is the idea that there is some kind of metaphysical category in the world, that all white people are reducible to this essence of whiteness. Then what happens is that they load all of these negative connotations. They say that whiteness is by definition that includes white fragility, includes white privilege, includes, includes internalized white superiority. And then what they do is they try to impose these reductive racial categories onto individuals. And I actually agree with Kendi's approach. I think that we should fight race essentialism. But the problem is that critical race theory enshrines race essentialism. But you and said you see it in schools. And I'll, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'll give you three examples of no, critical race theory being taught what, in schools. Hold
1: on one second. In Cupertino, California. These are California, in your talking points, sir. Chris, these are in your talking points, and I know what you're going to say because you said it with Mark Lamont Hill. You repeat these same things. They're in this manifesto. People can read it online. Let me just go for a second. On the subject of whiteness, are you aware, since you say that—I guess you're, you're sort of a quasi-historian in your, in your thinking—that whiteness was actually formed in the United States, that whiteness didn't even exist as a thing? Europeans were all European. They considered themselves Italian or Polish or whatever. When, when the colonists came here. They actually created the idea of whiteness. This is from the uh, from the sure. Smithsonian I agree uh, as that. a way to distinguish themselves from what they call the savages, the natives and from black people, from Africans who, even if you had a little African in you, you know, if you're Plessy, who's eighths white, if you are African in any aspect that you are reduced of rights. So people that you don't like that are doing this sort of wokeness training are saying whiteness has always had power. There used to be a saying of free white and 18. It, it was commonly said in the 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s and 60s. So whiteness has power. So people who don't who want to decouple whiteness from power, that's what you're annoyed by. Right. Let me play a little bit of what you said. You did no. a speech. Hold on. You did a speech uh, at the Claremont Institute in which you talked a little bit about how you really feel about the academics of it. Here it is. Um, this is cut. Uh, da, 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 da. I think this is uh, uh, is it three?
4: Yep. Yeah, go for it. Play it. I'm a white guy fighting critical race theory. Do you identify as white? Uh, I mean, I'm an Italian American. So you tell me, lumping people into white, black, Asian, as you suggested, is such a crude and broad categorization. There's these like very uh, kind of pathetic and very you know angry graduate students uh, that that you know try to fight me on these highly technical. Uh, you know, Hegel interpretations, and it's like, I don't have time for this, I don't give a about this stuff.
1: <laughs> so you don't give an S about this stuff. You're really just having a campaign to take everything that annoys white no, Americans that's and not white right. conservatives. No, Hold that's on. not right. You no. want to make a campaign no. I mean, and stuff give, everything you, you in there that people are doing.
4: You people my highlight get reel. Get give me a chance to respond. And you no, want to absolutely Stuff wrong. it
1: all into critical race theory, right? What
4: I don't think is right is that forcing eight-year-olds in Cupertino, California, to deconstruct their racial identities that's and then critical rank critical themselves according to power and privilege. It's intersectionality theory, which was invented by Kimberly Crenshaw. Intersectionality
1: is a separate thing. Which Intersectionality is, is a separate thing. Race no, it's you, not, dear. You had her on your show. You know this. She invented both things. What you've done things. in tonight's segment She's is in,
4: exactly what I'm fighting thing. against. I'm fighting no. against the manipulation of language. I'm fighting right. against you're, language You're fighting against
1: wokeness and, and you I'm don't like I'm trying to basically load all of these euphemistic
4: terms with subversive content because otherwise you just say whatever you want and then you back away from it and you dance around it. Yeah. Uh, It's not going to happen. Parents all over this country, they know what's happening in schools. They know what's happening in their public institutions. And you're Uh seeing people revolt against this divisive identity politics. uh, And and you can dance all you want, uh, but you're not going to stop people from understanding what's happening in their classrooms.
1: I actually appreciate that you said that, because, Christopher, what you basically and and you admit it yourself, that you've taken all of these sort of wokeness moments, corporate wokeness, uh, corporate sort of woke money, woke capital, the things that annoy conservatives, and you've stuffed it all into the name critical race theory. It's really like it's it's like Christopher Rufo theory. You stuffed it all in. Here's what you said. You tweeted this. The hey, activists. Listen, oh, hold on, I, hold on. One second. Rufo I'm going to read you fantastic. to you, and then you can respond to it. I'm going to read you to you, and then you respond to it. The activists are realizing that their ideas, once put into practice, are generating discontent, which is you just described. Their racial coalition true. is also breaking apart. Asian Americans, in particular, revolting against CRT, which is really Christopher Rufo theory because you made it up, uh, is punished them more than any other group. Then you said we have successfully frozen their brand critical race theory into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all the various cultural insanities under that brand category. The goal is yep. to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodified it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. Aren't you just taking taking wokeness stuff that annoys you and calling it critical
4: race theory? No, not not at all. The idea of the codification and decodification of language comes from the critical pedagogist Paulo Freire. And my strategy is to take these- Now you're doing
1: pedagogy, Christopher? Yes. Come on. To take
4: these techniques and use them against their own ideology. Mm. And I'll tell you, Joy, my strategy has been enormously successful. According to the Economist magazine poll- 64% of Americans now know what critical race theory is. No, they know what critical race theory is. Of which 58% of them. You made, it, view, view you made
1: up your own thing, my friend, you made up your own thing, you admitted Let you were going to do it, sentence. and I'm going to give you credit for one thing. You did create your own thing. Not a lot of guys in their 30s have created their own thing, labeled it something that already existed as a name, slapped that brand name on it, and turned it into a successful political strategy. You've done that. It's creating a lot of hell at school board meetings, but you did accomplish that. So, Christopher Rufo, thank you, man. Thank you for being here. Well, really Joy, appreciate I you.
4: appreciate it, and I'll give you the position as the most uh, prestigious Christopher Rufo theory scholar uh, in the world. I hope next time you give me a, at least a chance to complete two sentences. If I think, think it'll be a lot more not fun. Pro- well, not if you're going to we'll do try talking again points. next time. They
1: were your talking. Yeah, we'll points. So people can read your talking points online because they're online as well. They, you can read all of them. Thank
4: you very much, Christopher. OK,
1: Christopher Rufo uh, up next. Jelani Cobb is here to help us digest that interview and much more. We'll be right back. <laughs> So you heard my conversation with conservative activist Christopher Rufo about the distortion campaign that he and other conservatives and Republicans are waging over their new cultural boogeyman, critical race theory. And joining me now to react is Jelani Cobb, an historian and staff writer at The New Yorker. And Jelani, I just want to go through really quickly. And, you know, Christopher was very upset um, that I didn't let him read his talking points. These these are his talking points. So we printed them out. What he wanted—he started to do—and this is just for our audience, too—the reason that I did not let him continue is in this manifesto, in this Talking Points memo—and I used to be a press secretary, so I've made these for politicians—he wanted to start to read some of the stories that he has put in here to claim that they're critical race theory. He started to say Seattle public schools told teachers that the education system is guilty of spirit murder against black children, da And so he has them already here. He wants to read them on TV with people so that he can then advance his own version of he made up a version of that. He called it critical race theory. And just to prove that to the audience, just so that we can have this conversation with some context. Here he is at the Claremont Institute admitting that that is his plan. Here it is.
4: People were understanding that something is going wrong in the culture, that, that certain uh, ideologies and ideas were devouring institutions. And then we put a label to it. Critical race theory. Actually, they put a label to it in the 1990s. We just appropriated it, attacking it at a very practical political level and providing political leaders with a cudgel. He,
1: he says he's not a political operative, but you just heard him say it's a political cudgel. Just your thoughts, Jelani.
5: There's so many lies. I don't know where to start. I mean, he's just lying. You know, and and it's a very difficult thing to hear um, because as scholars, we actually care about definitions. We care about meaning. We care about nuance. We care about uh, scholarship and uh, historiography. And for a person uh, who just wants to throw grenades uh, and and play with shrapnel, uh, he's been able to take a idea devoted to the pursuit of equality devoted to understanding why equality has been, uh, has been so evasive in the span of our history, and then turn it into a weapon to further the inequality that was the problem in the first place. So there's so many things to start with. Let's start with the idea of whiteness. So we're looking at a project which is trying to understand the power afforded to a political category. And that is a political category of whiteness. We're not talking about individual white people. We're not talking about the person at your job or your next door neighbor or your friend who you went to school with. But that's what you would believe. And The idea that we're trying to have a crusade, which is going to marginalize American white Americans and turn the rest of the country into Wakanda. And they're playing on these fears in this way. That is not what critical race theory was concerned with. If we looked at the 1790 Immigration Act at the beginning of the country which relegated immigration, restricted immigration to people that they categorized as white, making the complaint, making the contention that only white people, this fictional category, could hold the rights of citizens. And so this is the the ancestral legacy of the country that we're grappling with. And so there's a few things that I want to say about in terms of reading. Go back and read Linnaeus and the, founding, the founder of taxonomy and his role in creating the categories of race and Blumenbach. Read Thomas Jefferson's Notes on Virginia, where he, as an intellectual, is looking at the cutting edge currents of racial theory in Europe and the creation of these subordination ideas of Africans and applying them to the context of this newly created country. Read Nell Urban Painter's book, The History of White People. Read Ken, even Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning. Read Gossett's history on race. There is an entire, we could talk about this for another 15 minutes with me just listing historiography. There's an entire body of knowledge that will explain what this is. And Mr. Rufo is just lying. It upsets me as a historian to see someone just lie about work that we care so diligently for.
1: And I mean, the the thing about it is that, you know, he even admits that he doesn't give a s about these things, right? He's not going to go read these books. He doesn't care about it. He literally said, and he tweeted and 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 admitted at the Claremont Institute, while sitting next to Michael Anton, by the way, the flight ninety three election guy who said that the immigrants coming into this country who are non-white have no sense or feel for democracy, basically, they shouldn't be here and then ended up in the uh, Trump administration. he admitted that he's just taking the things that irritate white conservatives and just conservatives in general. They don't like wokeness. They don't like, you know, trainings on white Americans being sensitive to non-white Americans. They don't like woke capital. They don't like those things. And so they're going to call them all critical race theory, and they're going to use them, as he said, as a political cudgel to get Republicans elected. I guess let me play for you Um, One last thing before we go. And this is uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley, who I thought was brilliant today, pushing back against this because they're also saying the military is too
2: woke. Take a listen. What is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers are being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago, and it proposed that there were laws in the United States, anti-bellum laws prior to the Civil War, that led to uh, a power differential with African-Americans that were three-quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military.
1: God bless that man. Do you, are, is it more... Is it more worrying to you that this kind of a sort of amygdala campaign um, is working out there in school boards and that people are being whipped into a frenzy because they're just irritated about wokeness or does it make you hopeful yes. to hear something like a General Milley?
5: It's alarming. But also, I think these people are not students of history in any regard, you know, because one of the things they would know is that uh, the public gave Joe McCarthy a great deal of rope and a great deal of leeway to spread his lies. Do you know when he got in trouble? When he said that the army was full of communists, people were not prepared to hear that. They don't want to hear their institution. the institution. The army is the institution that has the most trust from the United States. It's in the top three consistently. No one's going to believe that. And I'm really glad to hear General Milley speak out in that way yeah. uh, and a voice that people could at least hear some sanity from.
1: Yeah, God bless that man. I'm telling you, he said it exactly perfectly. Jelani Cobb, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here this evening. Okay, we are right back after this. A member of the far right group, the Oath Keepers, has pleaded guilty in federal court to charges stemming from the January 6th insurrection. Graydon Young became the second Oath Keepers member to plead guilty and the first to plead guilty to a charge of conspiracy, admitting he conspired with roughly a dozen other Oath Keepers. In doing so, he's agreed to cooperate with prosecutors and potentially testify against his former associates. And that's no small thing. In fact, the first Oath Keeper who agreed to cooperate with the government back in April was offered sponsorship in the Witness Protection Program. The need for witness protection would seem to contradict the idea that these were a bunch of peaceful tourists, as some Republicans would like you to believe. And a new video released today by the Justice Department shows that they were anything but. (laughs) Against that backdrop, that Speaker Nancy Pelosi is weighing whether to appoint a select committee, a, a la Watergate, to investigate the events of January 6. And joining me now is Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California. Congresswoman, it's always great to see you. Uh, and I want to ask you about the possibility of a select committee. Um, Scott Dworkin of the Democratic Coalition tweeted earlier today that a Republican consultant has said to him that they're urging the Republican senators to publicly push for a new vote on January 6th, a January 6 commission, saying a select committee would actually be devastating for. The GOP. Uh, that's very interesting. That re- any Republican would think that it would be devastating to have a select committee. Um, I'd love to have your comments on that. And what are you hearing about whether or not such a select committee is going to happen?
0: Well, let me tell you, Joy. Um, we're all disappointed, very disappointed, that we could get not we could not get bipartisan support uh, for a commission. Uh, You know, for them to resist, the Republicans, to resist a commission speaks to whether or not they are interested in really having the facts come out about the insurrection and what took place. Who was involved in it? Who supported the transportation for so many of those people to come by airplane, by bus, what have you? I know that there have been some reports that talked about those who signed up for the permit as being the same people who worked in the president's campaign. And so we wanted a commission that would be bipartisan. They have resisted it. And so, yes, we have to think about what is the alternative. Yes, a select committee is being talked about, and I think that we're going to have to go forward uh, with a select committee. I support that. The speaker has not announced it yet, but I know that it is being discussed. It is being thought about because we have to. We have to do something, and we have to get the facts out about who invaded our capital, This insurrection that took place where our police officers, the Capitol Police, were in hand-to-hand combat, uh, they did not have the kind of protection that they should have had and they were being beaten up and you saw the officer that got killed he was crushed and then the sight of the american flag on the pole used to beat up police officers is more than one can bear and so i'm anxious for us to move forward and get a select committee and i'm very hopeful that it will come about soon
1: And do you believe that Republican members of Congress who may have given tours or in any way helped um, and found aided in this insurrection should be subpoenaed
0: by such a committee? Yes, I do believe that. I do believe that, first of all, we have members of Congress, Republican members, who are aligned with and associated with QAnon. Uh, who know many of the Oath Keepers and some of the Proud Boys. And not only do we have some that uh, know them— and have worked with them, I believe uh, that there were tours that were given. I saw some of them the day before over in front of the Rayburn House office building. And at that time, I warned our Capitol Police to look out because strange characters was roaming around. And I saw some inside the House Rayburn uh, building. And so, yes, I do believe that some of the members of the Republican Party no more than they are telling a want to tell.
1: Yeah. And maybe that's why they are having a, a commission. Uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, thank you very much. Always great to speak with you. All right. And up next. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the Trumpiest of them all? Tonight's absolute worst. It's next. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is no longer just sucking up to his state's most infamous and orangiest retiree to score political points. He's going Trump twinsy on steroids in his quest to become the nation's top MAGA culture warrior, starting with, you guessed it, critical race theory. As Ron Ron DeSantis is urging, this month, the Florida Board of Education banned the teaching of critical race theory in Florida schools. You'll not be surprised to learn that, as the Miami Herald noted, state officials acknowledged it's not being taught in any Florida school districts. Oh, well. But Ron is fighting for re-election in 2022 and not so secretly angling to be the orange man's successor in 2024 or maybe even his running mate who best friends. When it comes to the pandemic, the two shared a similar do nothing attitude that really worked out great. Last month, Governor DeSantis, as his not-so-fans call him, basically said COVID is over, and he banned businesses from requiring proof of vaccination. The Orlando Sentinel now reports that Florida ranked 37th in the nation in a study measuring three areas of pandemic recovery—consumer confidence, job market strength, and COVID-19 safety. But wait, there's more! Ron's also getting into a MAGA warrior arms race with Texas Governor Greg Abbott on the issue of fear-mongering about immigration and the border—oh, the Brown scare— DeSantis said that he's sending Florida law enforcement officers to the southern border at Abbott's request the same day that Abbott said, hold my beer, I'm building a wall and fronting two hundred and fifty million dollars of Texas taxpayer money for it. Of course, not to be outdone by his fellow red state baby Trump, who signed a bill promoting patriotic education. In Texas, same thing they have in North Korea. Ron signed his own patriotic education bill in Florida, requiring students in Florida to be taught that communism and totalitarian governments are evil. But as we've noticed before, patriotic education is what China, it's what China called its propaganda efforts after the Tiananmen Square massacre. So there's that. But what garnered Ron the dishonor of absolute worst tonight is one of the other bills he signed. Requiring public universities and colleges to survey students, faculty and staff about their beliefs and viewpoints and suggesting budget cuts could be looming if universities and colleges are found to be, quote, indoctrinating students and the thought police. Except he wants to indoctrinate students by mandating patriotic education like we're, you know, China while banning certain things that students are taught, and also using the state to intimidate educators, which honestly sounds a lot like authoritarianism. And for that, you, Ron Comrade DeSantis, you've once again earned the dishonor of being the absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout.
3: When news breaks,
0: go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis
4: from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.